So if you're running deals right now and you're getting a lot of, you know, this isn't a priority, this isn't in our budget, you know, we're not adding any new vendors at this time. You know, my boss just shut this down. My CFO won't approve this. You're, you're definitely not alone, especially if you're an account executive. And what we're going to talk about today in this episode is three sales sins that make deals take 40% longer to close. So before we get to that, thanks for checking out Outbound Squad. My name is Jason Bay. You can call me Jay Bay. And with this podcast, my goal is to help you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So if you're an account executive doing some outbound, running some sales cycles, that sort of thing, or you're an BDR, SDR, who wants to become an account executive, but you're doing a lot of prospecting, you're definitely in the right place. So deals are taking a lot longer to close right now. You know, the data proves it. So vendor had a really interesting stat that sales cycles have lengthened by over 40% since COVID in 2020. And it's exactly what happens during times of economic uncertainty. So that's sort of the bad news, right? The good news is that top performers are still closing massive deals right now. And companies are still spending money on solutions that grow top line revenue, reduce unnecessary costs, minimize risk, that sort of thing. And there's three things you're going to learn in this episode that these top performers are doing differently. And this is an audio excerpt of a, a webinar that I did recently with Bilal Batrawi, uh, Carolyn uh, Murray, and Alex Mickle from Zoom Info. And we dig into these three things. So one is being single threaded with one point of contact. So we talk about multi-threading which if you've listened to this podcast or followed any of our content, you know, we've been talking about that a lot. Uh, two is over pursuing bad deals. So not disqualifying bad deals earlier. And then number three is just really running boring group calls. So not engaging the entire buying group, either in group calls or throughout the sales cycle. So this is going to be a good one. Before we get to the episode, really appreciate you checking out. If you could do me a big favor, what would really help us get this episode in front of more folks exactly like you is to do one of two things. One, just either share this episode with a coworker if you find it helpful or your boss, or leave us an honest reading and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, let's get started. We got a lot of content to cover. So big thing that we're going to dig into today is, and we'll introduce our guests here in a second, uh, three sales sins that make deals take 40% longer to close. So in preparing for this, what we wanted to talk about and just to kind of set the stage is there's the buying environment, obviously, in the last six to 12 months has been uh, very difficult for a lot of sellers, especially for selling software. And we wanted to point out and identify a couple things that you may or may not be doing that is like making deals take longer to close unnecessarily. So our goal is that you walk away with some really clear strategies on how to really de-risk a lot of the deals that you're working right now. So quick introductions. Uh, we have Carolyn Murray, and let's say, I want to make sure to get your guys' titles right here. You are mm -hmm. manager of Strat Sales at Zoom Info. Uh, we got Alex, senior manager of international revenue and growth at Zoom Info. And then we got Bilal Batrawi. Uh, it's done a bunch of stuff, but founder at uh, Death to Fluff. So uh, you guys ready to dig in? You cool? You ready for this? Ready. Yeah. So let us know in the chat uh, or the Q&A if you got any questions as we dig in. And uh, we're just going to kind of get started. So I want to kick uh, Alex the first question over your way. Right. Um, I thought that he's a great dude. Shit. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> What I thought would be good to talk about is, um, especially with the sellers that I work with, I notice a lot of the times that as a seller, we have not been in the position of buying the thing before that we sell. And we probably haven't done the job of a lot of the people that we sell to. So if we kind of step back and before we get into you know multi-threading or how to work with champions and all that kind of stuff, can you kind of walk through high level when you're working with your reps? Like, how do you talk to them around like how buyers are buying things, especially right now? What is the thing that a rep should know around what that buying process looks like so that when we approach the sales process, we can kind of align those two things a little better? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's two pieces to that. I, I, I think that 
uh, I'll, I'll hit the what that is right now side of it maybe second because I think that that's a really interesting question in the at the moment that we're all trying to solve for. But I think the first thing um, that that I spend a lot of time with my team talking about with regards to how to interact with buyers, especially if you're not someone who's ever performed the role before, is to kind of peel back away from looking at their title or their role or which department they sit in and instead focusing in on, I think, much more of like the basic humanistic components of conversation. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, every person wakes up, every person probably smashes their alarm, you know, groggily gets out of bed and then works through whatever their morning routine might be. For some people that might be like a really healthy morning routine. So for some people that might be like really chaotic, maybe you're chasing children around to get them to school. But I think that the point that I'm making is that Everybody has their own experience day by day, and that translates to their job in the same way. They are frustrated by things in the same way that we are as sellers, but they might not be things related to buying. So try to bridge like a connection, try to establish a baseline rapport. Uh, I think be naturally inquisitive is something that a lot of sellers talk about kind of natively. Um, but at the end of the day, most of it is find that point, that trigger point in any conversation, regardless of who your buyer is, and focus on building rapport instead of focusing on what the product is, how easy it fits into their system, or any of those other components that I think we really quickly shift to. Because once you bridge that connection, once you build that baseline of rapport, then the conversation flows a lot more, a lot more naturally. And also the, the person you're speaking to, I, I think, is really much more open to receiving kind of any feedback or any, you know, pitch deck that you might have at that point. So I think that'd be the first thing that I would say. Um, I can continue to the second unless you want to pause me and ask questions or add to that at all. Uh, go ahead with the second. I'm going to definitely want to tag on that because this is a... Uh... I feel like rapport and the relationship and the sale is like, I feel like the pendulum is swung a little bit too far in the wrong direction with a lot of the advice that I see, especially on LinkedIn, where it's like the relationship's not important. I'm like, yeah, that's really? interesting. And especially, <laughs> you know, so little of the job ha- gives you even time to build rapport. So that might be where some of that yeah. communication is coming from. Um, I, before I continue the next point, Dave Sill is a member of the leadership team that used to be at Zoom Info previous to that Discover Org. And one of the things that he said that resonated with me, and I've thought about probably way more often than he intended when he said it, was like, you don't know what that person's day looked like. You could have built a really strong rapport with a buyer. You could have had the deal three seconds from the finish line. And that person could have woken up and his wife decided to leave him. And suddenly everything that matters to him has nothing to do with work, but because we're so used to pushing and pushing from a, from a B2B perspective or a work to work perspective, uh, I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And, and I think that that translates really well in business conversation the same way, like what potentially is impacting that. Um, okay. Second point would be how does this change or, or what's kind of shifted in the current selling environment? I think that really at the end of the day, we can't trust a single threaded relationship any longer. Like that's the easiest answer to give right there, in my opinion. Uh, It's the shortest distance between two spots though. You can spend all of your time, effort and energy building this rapport with this buyer or who you anticipate being the buyer. But at the end of the day, you need to be doing that probably two to three times more often than you were historically used to. Because that person, even if they stubbornly believe that they own 100% of the buying influence, most likely they don't anymore. Most likely it's it's pivoted to other people. So I think that that just requires more effort and energy and the ability to kind of build connection and rapport quickly. Whereas previously it didn't, you didn't have to kind of spend as much time on the deals. You know, the same, I would say goes for the selling side, multi-threading in essence being equivalent to like the team selling motion. We're seeing not a whole lot of deals closed that are single threaded on our side, mean, meaning if it's only the rep that's doing the selling and they don't bring in you know, a manager or the head of customer service or somebody else to give some other input, I think you, you really shoot yourself in the foot by the end of the deal cycle when you realize, hey, they've been talking to their team involving all these people in this decision. They've had one point of contact and we're not always the best gauge of who trusts us and who doesn't. And then, you know, you've, you've lost that ability to like bounce off that emotional aspect off of other people to see, hey, am I 
am I in the right mindset for this deal? Are they actually going to buy or is this trending well? So I think the same goes again for our side of things. You need to be bringing in other people from the team from our perspective. Well, and not to like belabor the points at all, but I think that actually that mindset that Carolyn just shared is exactly the way we need to be thinking about selling to alternative buyers as well. Because I think that what you're seeing is an evolution of our sellers to bringing in secondary team members, tertiary team members, and just kind of expanding that web. Some of the biggest deals are like 10 plus people have been involved along the way from every department. And if you think, if I need to loop these people in from these alternate departments to close the deal, imagine what the person from the alternate department is thinking as they're speaking to you receiving the information to begin with. They're probably trying to figure out what they have to do as well. Yeah. I want to, if we could pause here real quick, because we're starting to get into, I'll drop into the chat, sin number one being single threaded in deals. And I want to just ask the audience, LinkedIn has a lot of great data on this, but according to LinkedIn, what percentage of reps are single threaded in their deals? Let us know in the chat. What do you think that is? What percentage of deals are single threaded for the typical B2B rep? We have 40%. What do you guys think it is actually? I mean, I would say gotta be above 50. I don't know. Probably vast majority. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of that too happens when somebody feels like they didn't do a great job on the initial call. So that's a lot of what we're working with on our team is it's okay to screw up on the first call or it's okay. If you didn't get the best response, that does not mean that you need to stick with your one person you called or be embarrassed about the deal. You know, there are many, many ways to recover from a bad call. What do you think? It's gotta be more than two thirds because I I was never formally taught how to multi-thread. And if I wasn't taught it, I don't think other (laughs) reps were. It was yeah. never part of any sales training I did. I've been in sales for a decade and a half. I, I don't recall a single sales training that sat me down and taught me the mechanics of multi-threading and its purpose and how to do it. It's just, I think it's an implied skill. These things are like, oh, you should know how to do this, right? Just like, you know how to talk, right? So you should be able to do a demo because if you know how to talk, you just have to show and tell. It's like, well, that's not how it works. Multi-threading yeah. is the same thing. Like, oh, you know how to CC people in an email, right? Well, that's multi-threading. It's like, man, that's not quite what it is. Yeah. So it's 78%. So I want to kick this question your way, Bilal. So let's uh, let's dig into this first sin. So sin number one is being single-threaded in a deal. And this is way more important now than it's ever been. But um, I know you talk about the buying process and the buyer's journey a lot. Like, how do you feel like that fits in? Like, what's the connection between the buyer's journey and multi-threading? Yeah. And, and anybody who's seen my content will know this, but I... I the buyer's journey, whether you're buying a you know, stick of gum, a house, a piece of software, you follow five stages. So you go to unaware, aware, consideration, evaluation, decision. That's how it works. All right. And what's interesting is that every person that's involved in the deal has to follow that same cycle. And when it gets messy is that when you start having multi-stakeholders involved in the deal and you're single-threaded, you don't realize that those other people. So you talk to person number one, person number one brings in person number two. Is person number two at the same stage as person number one? So person number one might be evaluating. Person number two might be problem unaware. That's how far away they are from alignment with the first person you're talking to. But you just assume everybody being brought into the deals at the same buyer stage. So you go and do this whole sales process and the second person and third person get brought in and you just give them the same demo you did for the first person thinking everybody's on the same page. And lo and behold, person number three says, what is this even about? And you're like, wait, what? You didn't, you know, they didn't tell you? You guys didn't discuss this before jumping on this one hour meeting. And this is like my fourth meeting with this company. And and you're single threaded and you had no idea, right? Because you didn't involve anybody else and you weren't analyzing the situation. And it gets so messy quick. And those deals ghost you, stall out, status quo, no decision, close, loss, whatever you put. Those are those deals. And they keep happening more and more now than ever before. Yeah. There's also a there's a power dynamic that happens I think again after the first call where you've got somebody you already did this whole discovery process with, you learned about the company, the challenges, etc. and then they go loop in, hopefully, five other people from their team and they say to you, "Hey, please skip the discovery." Like, I've told you what you need to know. 
make this a short and easy presentation. Uh, to me, you know, everyone's going to take on this, but I say, okay. And then I just let that go and we go right back into it. Right. And granted, you've got to take a little bit of a different tone. Like if you ask the same questions and you make it the same run through as you did before, that's going to piss everybody off. But there is a finesse to it where you can go back in and, you know, give a recap of what your last guy said. And then on this team say, your focus is wildly different than him, as we're aware. So I need to know your priorities and go through that discovery again. But I think that was a big aha moment for me early days of selling. It's like, I just can't listen to that suggestion. It just won't benefit me. You've got to go back through discovery with every single person that you're talking to. There's never a scenario, in my opinion, where you should just launch into some presentation based on what somebody else told you. Okay, let's backtrack a bit. Let's talk about that first call. Because I think the first call is where you set the stage and the expectations around multi-threading. And I think one of the, I've been talking to a lot of sales teams about this topic and the biggest fear, well, let us know in the chat, actually, when it comes to multi-threading, what's the biggest challenge or fear that you have? Let me know in the chat. I'll tell you mine while people put it in the chat. Mine was always this um, fear of uh, bothering the champion or the the person that was going to be that I'm going above their head. Exactly. And uh, stepping on their toes and making them feel like, wow, this seller is so pushy. Look, look how they're trying to get my boss's boss involved and just bypass me. Yeah. That was always my top fear. It made me not do it, which was the wrong answer to that question. There, I don't know yep. if there's a right answer per se, because you will have people that do take it personally when you try to multi-thread. But yeah. And that's what everyone's putting in the chat. That's the that's probably what 80, 90% of the people that I ask share. Um, Carolyn, I want to kick this question your way. On the first call, uh, what are some things that a rep should be thinking about if that call starts with a, let's call it a below-the-line buyer? So someone that's maybe a manager or director. Um, you know, it's not the CRO coming in, in the case of, of Zoom Info, let's say, right? Very typical sales cycle starting with someone that's probably has a moderate amount of influence. There may or may not be an open project. Um, they may not be looking at other people so far, whatever it might be. Um, what are some things that they should think about in preparation, maybe for that first call or during that first call to really set the stage that like we're going to get additional folks involved? I think you kind of hit on the moderate influence, which is, I think it's the most important part and equally the hardest part is you really need to be constantly sussing out how much influence this person has. And people have a really hard time understanding whether or not they should trust a champion. So to give an example, like you get a lot of people that are maybe an account executive or a manager like me, you know, they're not going to sign the check, but they do have some sway, let's say. And they might tell you every single thing that needs to happen. And what still shocks me is we, we do have a lot of reps that just say, oh, buyers are liars because that's what they've been taught. And they still want to go through the same process of this is not the person and let's go around them. And they've almost taken the multi-threading to like an extreme of let's go around a potential champion. And the champion's a champion for a reason. You've got to really be sussing out on that first call. Like, have they ever done anything like this? Have they ever been in some sort of, let's say, software sales cycle? Has their team ever deployed anything? Were they the person that ran a trial on it? Were they the person that pitched it to the CFO? So the easiest way, again, is just getting some example of where they've done this before. If they haven't done it before, that doesn't mean that they're not a valuable person to take it to the end line, especially if it's like a small company where they're the only person. But again, it's just kind of navigating your gut check of will this person get me to the end and really trusting that because there are scenarios where the multi-threading can screw you over when they say, I am the person, (laughs) I am the person that will present this. There is a process that I want to follow. You've got to trust that person. So, of course, there's going to be a point where deals stall out when that happens, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. But that's the biggest thing for me is, um, you know, not offending somebody by early on asking, oh, well, 
who signs this and who else needs to be involved because people have their guard up a little bit at the beginning of a call. I think, you know, towards the end, you can start talking about that. At the beginning, it should be more personal to them of what they've experienced with these types of purchases before. Yeah. So I think that's a really great place to start, especially during a call is like, have you purchased something like this before and how did that work and who was involved and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's a, that's a great place to start. Um, Alex, before that first call, what kind of research are you having reps do prior to that first call, like on stakeholders? Let's say other people that are not attending that first call that might be. Sure. Hey, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that, well, there's, I think the first thing I would do, obviously, is publicly stock them on LinkedIn and any other, you know, articles. I personally really like going to Crunchbase too, getting a sense of like the overall company structure and like if they've received funding and, you know, try to track down any articles, you know, from that side of of uh, kind of the availability. But the other thing is like, dependent upon the type of company that you're prospecting into, if it's not a small company, there's a pretty good chance that someone from your company historically has tried to track into it as well. Maybe you've had a previous relationship, maybe, you know, there's prior correspondence and you can kind of get a sense as if the landscape as you're going into a call is like net new, or if they have historical feedback and you're kind of overcoming that. I think that, you know, outside of that, there's probably not a lot more that I think would be necessary for, for an intro call, especially to Carolyn's point, because the hope would be that you don't walk in with too many preconceived notions so that it doesn't hurt your discovery. Because if you go in with a bunch of assumptions and you believe you know who you're selling to and you believe that they're the right person, but you haven't even qualified that or asked the right questions to get you the right point, then I think you're hurting yourself by over-researching as well. So simple, maybe the five-minute rule, get that done, get it out of the way, and then like shift into your pitch and getting it right for the audience. Yeah. One additional thing that I would add, I love what you shared there, is if you typically know how a deal comes together for whatever solution you're selling, it's nice to kind of have a couple names that you could toss out as a suggestion. Like for me, what I'm assuming the same thing happens to you guys at Zoom Info. Um, you get like an ops or an enablement person coming inbound, like sales enablement managers, very common inbound lead. So for me to be able to suggest that, hey, the director of sales that's working directly with these AEs who you're trying to get to self-source more outbound, it's nice for me to be able to call that person out by name and suggest that we involve them, you know, in the next call. A little pro tip for you guys. If you can suggest a specific person, it's easier to correct you than to educate you. Um, So coming in with that can really help. Um, Bilal, during the actual call, how do you suggest approaching that conversation of getting other folks involved? Because the the bad advice, and I'm willing to be corrected by you guys on this call too. The bad advice I feel like is asking something like who would feel left out if they weren't a part of the next call. And it's like, I never get a great answer to that question when I've asked it. It's like, uh, no, I'm the person is usually what people will say. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so how do you suggest approaching that conversation when we're talking about you know next steps or at some point in that call, like where we need to kind of explain and get buy-in, you know, so so to speak, and involving other people. Yeah, it's a really important question, and and um, for those that don't know me, my hashtag is death to fluff. So I'm disarmingly blunt in my approach and how I deal with buyers, and they find it quite refreshing because I'm not playing games on things like pricing or competitors or implementation or product weakness. And this is one of those things where I just feel like walking on eggshells is the worst thing you could do possible. Because think of it like this: there's no such thing as a professional buyer. They don't go to school or training or anything like that to learn how to buy. This is the one act of buying they might do that day, week, month, or year. You do this day in and day out. You're supposed to be talking to people like them every single day, every single week, every single month. So who's the burden on to bring the professionals into the conversation? Them or you? It's you. And buying happens in a pattern. Buying does not happen randomly. You will see over time as you sell deals, there's a certain beat or pattern that gets followed. There are sometimes deviations from that pattern, but overall, there's sort of a progression that occurs. So you have to inform your buyer of that progression. Here's how I've seen it work before. It works typically when we can achieve X, Y, and Z together, which will involve one, two, and three. 
one and two from your side and three from mine. I want to make sure that you're comfortable bringing in one and two so that I can bring in person number three to make this happen. That doesn't have to be today. It's not this conversation for it, but I'm saying, you know, I've seen it work before. What are your thoughts on that? You just bring it straight up and, and you pressure test your buyer in that moment because how is somebody serious about buying when we just agreed and all the stats prove it, all the state of sales reports show that buying no longer happens in isolation. There's all this buying committee now. People buy and there's sometimes two, three, four, five stakeholders involved. So if you really have a buyer, wouldn't they be the first to tell you, yeah, you're right. There are going to be other people involved. Now, they might not be comfortable bringing them in yet. That's a different point, but at least acknowledging what you're saying. So run towards that conversation. Don't shy away from it with some cheesy, you know, who's going to feel left out nonsense. It's your job. Be the professional. It also, in the same vein, like it's just as important to say how this fails. And I think somebody in the chat, Sean Robinson or something had mentioned this too, right, right along the same lines, which is like, those buyers are going to give you all of their ideas of how they want to run this. And again, you have to kind of take control of that situation and you have to tell them in scenarios where you know it's going to fail, that you know it's going to fail. And you have to humanize yourself and say, look, we can do that. For example, we could you know, skip the discovery process with that team. I am telling you, it does not go well. And I will lose the deal and you will lose the deal and we both want this. In my experience over and over and over, when we do that, I have learned it will fail. And so... It ultimately is up to you. You know, I'm going to let you kind of play the cycle how you want to do it. And I understand that every company is unique and I trust your opinion on this. But I'm telling you, in my experience, this will not work. And there's also an aspect of that is, um, you know, they want to know that a seller is human. They want to know that a seller loses deals too. You know, we're not out here winning every single time. So if you can show that kind of empathy of, to yourself of, you know, Hey, I've lost before. And it's because I didn't do my job and I didn't stand up and say, this is how people tend to buy. So yeah, Bilal, your, your point is great. I think it's showing both sides of like, this is how we tend to run things and this is what works, but also equally this stuff really does not work doing something too early in the sales cycle, for example. Yeah. And let me just address really quick Ken's point about there's professional buyers and purchasing departments. You're referring to like centers of excellence and procurement centers that larger companies will have. Those people are not the ones that make your deal happen. Those are the ones that help your champion on the buyer side, navigate the internal nuances and structure and uh, requirements in order to facilitate a purchase. So those are not your point of contact. Those are not the people that you typically work with on a daily basis for that deal. They are just an additional stakeholder involved to help that department head or that person representing the company navigate the purchase. You still have to help that champion navigate all of that. And they themselves, the, the, the end user or the economic buyer of your product is not a professional buyer. You are the professional seller. So regardless of any sort of center of excellence or procurement that gets involved, you still have to arm your champion with the information they need to get the deal done internally. Because there's a lot of selling that's happening when you're not in the room. Uh, so one thing that I would add, and you guys are big on this at Zoom Info, is customer voice. So like, if you have a great customer story, especially that you can use in this situation, um, an underlying principle that I find very effective with multi-threading is to multi-thread not to sell the deal, but to sell the outcome. So in other words, if we think buyer's journey like the journey just begins when they purchase a solution, right? They have to implement, like they purchase to get an outcome from your solution. So the way that you can frame this is what's the best way to get a great outcome from the solution. So for me, it's if, if sales enablement doesn't involve frontline sales leaders on the training content that I'm providing, no one's, the training's not going to land without their buy-in. If the VP of sales is not having input into how this fits into the six to 12 month, like kind of long-term plan around where they're trying to take the department, it's not going to land, you know? So talking through a customer story about whose input is needed in order for the implementation of the thing that you're selling to have a great outcome, I find that the conversation then revolves around multi-threading and getting people involved to drive a great outcome versus helping me win the deal faster. So if you feel weird about 
you know, being selfish, I guess, in this way to get the deal faster, that's a way that you can frame it to a buyer to like really get them to lean in. Well, and, and, and to that point, I, what I really like about that suggestion is that you also kind of have your own map that you can follow based upon the profile yeah. that you're targeting. And, and this is something that Zoom Info loves. So I would agree with you there. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about the data, right? So case studies are just a different format of data, right? It's telling you who your main points of contacts are. It's telling you who your economic buyers are, dependent upon the size of the organization, because of course that changes. But it's telling you who your champions were on deals that already happened. And so that you walk in and you say, not only is this a case study, but this company, when we did X, Y, Z with them, they included these people. Is your structure of organization similar to theirs? And then you avoid all of that concern about yeah. feeling like you're putting someone off because you've taken historical context. You've taken data as a foundation. You've presented that data to them and said, believe this, because I'm not saying it, someone else is. And then they want to include the other people so that they're in a similar position outwardly. So I, I think it works on both fronts, honestly. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, so we're going to kind of transition here. I think the key takeaways for multi-threading, uh, I mean, Carolyn, you brought up a really good one, like not being afraid to push back <laughs> on an idea. When they say, I'm going to go do this, and you know that that's probably not going to work, like not being afraid to push back, like talking about the benefit to the buyer from multi-threading. It's a way for them to de-risk the project and de-risk the deal, right? Um, so if we kind of segue here, the second kind of area, God, there's a bunch of different directions that we could go with this. Um, where my head's kind of going is, I don't know, I, I've seen people call it champion enablement or buyer enablement, like equipping our champion to have some of these conversations. Um, so the first kind of situation that oftentimes happens is if the champion is going to need to socialize the conversation to get other people involved, what do we give them to make sure that conversation goes well? Because oftentimes at that stage, it could get shut down if that person's not great <laughs> at selling internally. Um, so I'll kick this one uh, your way first, Bilal. Um, champion enablement. If we have someone that we feel like can do a good job of socializing, what's our duty as a seller to make sure that they have what they need to kind of socialize it internally and involve other people and for that to be effective. Yeah, you know, it's that it's so tough because you won't be in the room. Like I was taught early in Sandler's that you, you know, you can get yourself in the room with those discussions. And the truth is you you can't. There's so much that's going to happen after the meeting is done and you send off that email that that person has to do. And you're just not going to be privy to any of it. Uh, or maybe a fraction of it, even if you multi-thread, even if you do all that stuff, there's still a lot that happens on the buyer side that you're just not going to get exposed to. Um, but the thing about it is this, when you realize that the, the thing that I want my champion to start thinking about is how does this go sideways? How are people going to knock this idea when you bring it up? Because change is hard. That you, you, like We all have to accept that. No matter what you say or you sell or you position, no matter how minuscule you think it is, change is hard. And people would prefer to go with the devil they know than the devil they don't. That's just how it is. So there's always going to be that person internally that's going to play the skeptic, that's going to poke holes, that's going to say, why? Why are we doing this? I like it. I don't understand. I used them in the past. It didn't work out. Blah, 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 blah. You're not going to be there to help your champion in that moment. And you need to get your champion thinking about that with you on the call to coach them through that and giving them some sort of a business case that helps them navigate when that's going to happen, because it will. Guaranteed, at some point, somebody's going to poke holes in the idea, and you will not be in the room. Can your champion defend properly what you've been working on with them? So that's the, that's the business case that you need to really write. And it has to be in the buyer's language, because if you give them your value props, that's just not going to land. Like It will not land if you're equipping your champion with your value props to throw some vendor language in that conversation. It won't work. Yeah. Can can I add to that? I mean, I, I'm coming at this from a, a slightly different angle as well. Like part of the function that we run over here is account management, which I'm largely included in. And one of the things that we talk about is building a plan with clients once they're already on board. Now, obviously that's not directly relevant to the question, but I think to Blas's point, if you can build that rapport and you have that champion and you want to enable that person, you should be building out like a strategic model for what the implementation looks like after the product's been implemented. 
make it less about the pitch and the price and more about like what happens. And actually Andy mentioned it really well. I mean, at the end of the day, part of this conversation should also include, does this person grasp the gravity of their circumstances if they don't solve the problem? Like what, what happens with inaction? What happens if you don't implement it, right? Like, is that outcome far worse than the risk you're taking? And if both of those pieces are in alignment, then I think you eliminate a lot of the fear because probably most of the reason that our internal champions can't get the deal across the line is we just talked about how us as sellers who sell all day long are selling to non-sellers and then asking those non-sellers that we just sold to that we were maybe fearful to approach to begin with to do the exact same thing with someone higher than them without the sales experience and none of the product know-how. That's insane. That request is absolutely unbelievable. That's like hiring someone from the street who's never sold a thing and then putting them on an important call and expecting the outcome to be the same because you gave them a pitch deck. It's just not the same context, right? So why do we think that that's going to work ever? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Dude, I love it, man. There's so much there because that's the, and I've done, I've made this mistake so many times where you just give your champion a 30 page pitch deck. And it's like, no one's going to open that deck, by the now, way. That's my, that's, the call recording. Here's the call recording. There's no one watches the call recording. <laughs> there you no, go. One wa- no one even watches if Even if you do a 60 second video recap, I can't get, even get people to watch that, you know? So I think the, I want to kick this question your way, Carolyn, is what is the information that I should give, like the components of the information? We've talked cost of inaction, I think, is one piece. But what are the broad brushstrokes of what I want a champion to have? And maybe in what form, too? Is this an email that you give them with, like, three lines on it with, like, here it is? Like, what are you giving them? And what do you need to get, I guess, through discovery in order to feel like, okay, cool. Like, they have what they need here so that there's a high probability that other people are going to get interested in this? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, and it's very product specific to or service specific. I, I try at all costs to avoid any sort of mass info dump after the first call or even like the templated email, for example, of here's the info and here's what we do because I know they'll take that and run with it and say, okay, that's enough. And they won't ask me more questions. So for me, I'm trying more to get a finite next step on that first call that involves no follow-up email. Quite frankly, I'm trying to say, okay, so do me a favor. I always ask at the end of a call, do me a favor. I'm going to send you a note, you know, for trying to schedule the next call with so-and-so. Can you just respond to that? Let me know you got it. And then you can go coordinate. I want to make sure we're in contact. That's actually one of my like number one opinions of follow-up is asking if they can respond immediately after that first meeting, just reply to my email. I think it's like, I mean, we talk about ghosting, like so many of our buyers ghost us after an email. So just getting that first reply I've seen gets way more responses later on, just gets them to engage via email. Cause you know, they can reply. They can't like hide behind the screen and act like you went to spam. So you ask, uh, anyways, sorry, that's a, do, yeah. you, do you ask for the reply? Like, do you say that on the call? Like, Hey, I'm going to send you an yeah. email. Could you reply to that as soon as, okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a small detail. I think that's really important. Minutia, but it is like, it yeah. gets them to engage with you. And it, in my experience, wildly like increases the non-ghosting rate. Do we want to call it that? Yeah. So I just say like, Hey, can you do me a favor really quick? I'm going to send you an email right now, either on the call or right after the call. Can you just reply to it? Make sure that you got it. And then I'll send you the times or I'll send you, you know, whatever we're going to follow up with. But I do avoid that like big information dump. Um, And this kind of connects to the last question too, which is if you're having trouble trying to get more people involved using the customer voice, as you said, but more in a, um, in a way of like, who's going to be the end user. So if you have a product or a serving service, excuse me, that impacts multiple user groups, I'll use Zoom Info as an example. I'll say things like, hey, I've seen this play out a million times, obviously, where maybe a few people on the sales team get access. And then it spreads like wildfire. It's like two days later, you have the account management team and the you know recruiting team saying, hey, why didn't we get this? I, like, we weren't involved in the sales cycle. 
And then everybody's up in arms. And then you've got this big upgrade that quite frankly could have been like cheaper if we had just done it up front. So FYI, again, play it how you want to, but you're going to implement this. It's going to impact all of these people, other user groups that want access, integration team who needs to set it up, CFO who's obviously got to pay for it. And you don't want that red flag after you don't want to have to go through a whole nother sales cycle. So it's probably better if we do this on the front end. Right. Um, But yeah, in regards to the follow-up, I mean, we use conversational intelligence. So I'm a big fan of sending like a snippet or two where there's some sort of really powerful champion reaction. The person on the call, when they say like, oh, wow, this is really impactful or wow, I can see how this would, you know, do X, Y, Z for our company. I love to pull a clip from that in the follow-up because you want them seeing themselves doing the internal selling. Yeah. So I want to be uh, make sure I'm clear with this. So after the first call, you don't really send an email recapping what you've learned in that call. It's more like, a, let's just get the next call scheduled in the, in the follow-up after the first call. Yeah. I mean, look, it's not one size fits all. That's my opinion. I've had more success with it. I've found that the lengthy email follow-up is a much longer process. So I try as long as possible to avoid that recap until we are truly in front of, you know, a team that has specifics. Like, I don't want to send you what I think you want to see. I want to know actually what needs to be done. And I want to send you relevant content by then. Interesting. Uh, Alex, Bilal, what are your thoughts? By the way, it's okay for us to disagree on the uh, the panel. I I don't do what Carolyn does. I disagree with that. It might be more specific to her scenario or the deals that she does. I do send the recap email and it is templated. And I do the generic thing that probably every AE on this call has done at least once in their life. But, uh, but I'll tell you, mine does look a little bit different than maybe what some of the others might do in that uh, I've been trained a lot in looking for essentially what Alex was pointing to, which is what's going to make this person take on reputational risk to champion this internally. And there's usually some emotional trigger, something personal to them. And I'm always looking for that thing on that first call. What is that thing that makes them say that outlandish statement that's really emotionally charged? You know, when people say things like, yeah. it makes me pull my hair out of my head. You know, I feel like my seat is on fire. There's always that one little statement that people say, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not normal language. Why do you feel that way? And I want that emotional powder keg. And that's what I'm going to summarize in there. But I will arm them with some of the basic stuff from my company so they can have an intelligent conversation with the next person, because um, I rarely give a full demo unless somebody is truly ready for it. So I'll just give them little sound bites of the product. Here's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I can do a lot more, but just to give you an idea so I don't keep people guessing. So they need something to go back with when they talk to others. So I will provide some stuff. But my recap is really focused on that emotionally charged powder keg statement that they say that I seek out in the first call and I'm pushing them for it. And if I don't get it again, that's not the pattern of a buyer red flags go up for me. And I go, why are we doing this? What's going to make you do this? Is this really the right time? And I start pushing back to hear it from them, why we should keep doing the conversations. Yeah. Jason, before you jump in, I, I, I love both approaches. I'm going to be dead honest, but like, I I think maybe I'd lean closer to Carolyn's approach, which seems counterintuitive. And I totally understand that. Mm-hmm. But Ball, to your point, like so much of selling is tying into that emotional component, right? Like it's finding that vein and tapping into it. And the reality is that when you follow up with a dense email or an email that feels like maybe too templated, I'm sure yours aren't that way, but I'm sure there are plenty of people in every organization who didn't have a hand in writing those template emails. They're just in their sequence. But if you don't have that email for them to go back and be like, I don't know if I agree with that part of that sentence on that recap, that wasn't the thing. I don't know why they're so like when you pull away from that and they just walk away from the call, only remembering that they really liked you and they thought the product would solve their problem. I think there's a lot of benefit to not inundating them with information either. Even if it's beneficial, critical information, 
my bet is that they could probably find it just in the era that we live in. Like everything about your business exists online somewhere for them to access. The thing that doesn't exist is the feeling that they had coming out of that call, which is ultimately going to be a strong pull for them to sell it internally. And the other thing you can do to, and to clarify, it's not like I never send a recap email. I just try and avoid it at all costs, right? I try and get the next step being a phone call or a conversation with somebody else or whatever it is without doing that, because not only is it time consuming, but I think a lot of it is shooting from the hip on, you know, things that could be irrelevant. But in the event, they, they say the standard, like, can you send me a recap? I want to share it. There is a way of navigating that where you say, like, you kind of craft it with them on the fly. You say, yeah, so let me, you know, take a few bullet points really quick. So if you're relaying the info, like, tell me what stood out, like, what's going to resonate with them the most? Oh, it's this and this. And I'm kind of typing. And sometimes I'll even screen share and pull up like a drafted email and say, like, look, I'll obviously do my job and fill in the blanks on all of this. But these are the things that stood out to you. And then I'm going to put my impact statement too of what I think they need to hear in that email. But it's just a good way of not dumping a bunch of stuff that really they can't speak to. You want them to tell you back first. Yeah. Oh, so I'm going to share my screen here. Let me know what you guys think of this. I'm like really bullish on the recap email, (laughs) Um, but, but not talking about me at all. It's more like what I uncovered. But what I'm taking away from this conversation is what I like about the, there's things, I think pros and cons to both the zoom info approach is like, you guys are very careful about like not wasting time unnecessarily on deals that may or may not go anywhere. So it's like, be really conscious of how much time you invest in this. Um, Let me know what you guys think of this. Cause I, this is, I feel like a big part of what I teach and how I sell. Like this is like the middle part of the email. So to basically be like, hey, Alex, thanks for meeting me today. Here are the outcomes for the next call. And I just like, hey, what are your priorities? What's your current state? And then what are you trying to do? And on this next call, I'm going to share how we've helped other companies with those same exact things and talk about how we can support you. This takes this takes three minutes to write because I've already captured these notes during the call. But I find that doing this the number one mistake I see people make on the second call is this is your first slide. The first slide in a demo should be, here's what I've uncovered so far. Carolyn, you went on the last call. Alex, you weren't on the last call. I talked to Bilal. Here's what we talked about. How does this align with what you're focused on right now? This is also the agenda I put into the calendar invite too. Like this is literally what it says on the calendar, invite. here's what we're going to talk about. And I find that having that And again, I would love for you guys to like, you know, disagree or provide feedback or whatever on that. But I find that like in the calendar invite, that's a really hard meeting to cancel when the number one priority for the sales team, that's the topic for the next meeting. It's really hard for someone not to show up to that. You know what I mean? Do you send an email and then send that email though? Or that calendar invite though? You send a follow-up with those t- topics, and then you also follow on with the calendar and you include the same topics in your calendar invite, yeah? So I include the calendar invite, I send live on the first call. Yeah. Um, so I want to get it there. And then in the notes, I put uh, agenda coming soon. And then I send the email, ideally later that day or within 24 hours. And then I take the email, the stuff that they shared with me, and I put that into the calendar invite. So, I mean, if, if, if I could play devil's advocate here just a little bit, you're kind sure. of doing the exact same thing. Carolyn said, you're just doing it in reverse, right? Like you're sending the calendar invite while on the call, they're confirming it. You're like, did you get that? Absolutely. It's the same type of thing as the email sent. And then you're putting yeah. the notes in the outbound email follow-up, which is the part that's maybe more divisive in this conversation, but why not do yeah. the email send and then just put the calendar invite that you agreed to on the call as your follow-up with all of the notes. So they get it. And they recap yeah. that way if you still wanted to get it out, but you have a confirmation yeah. of that follow-on as well. Yeah. Oh, I don't have any, the order of it, I don't really have a preference around. It's more around, do you take, put those notes into an email or not? Is, is more, more my thing. It's, yeah. um, I just find I just, that, and we don't need to spend too much time on it, but that's just, I'm really bullish on that. I feel like it's a really big part of uh, it's an even keeping everyone yeah. No, I think that's good, Jason. And actually like to double down on that. Our the our top seller last year, like by a landslide, he has a very st- 
standard format of a follow-up, whether he sends it in a calendar or a follow-up every single time. I don't think he sends it every single time, but when he does, the format is slightly different than that, but the same it's in bold. He says what I heard on our call. Here's what I heard on our call bold. And then he puts bullet points of problems and it has to be problem specific because the issue is your champion is going to go to their CEO or whatever. And they're going to say, Hey, I think we should buy this product. It's great. It's it's shiny. It's new. They're going to say all the good things, hopefully about your product. But what they're not going and saying is, Hey CEO, I'm spending my entire day prospecting. I'm having a hell of a time. I've got challenges with this. I've got blah, blah, blah. They're not going and being the squeaky wheel. They're usually afraid to and saying every single problem they have, but you got those problems on the call. So the body of your email, in my opinion, should be more focused on here's what I heard on our call of all of your problems, (laughs) you know, and that's an easy thing they can forward and kind of skate away, not having to say it verbally. So I think that is important. I liked what you did around future state, because I think a lot of people will then say, okay, here's how our company can solve your challenges. And they get into really like product specific details, which is where you get the bulk and the length. When in reality, it is nice. And that was a good way to paint it of just desired future state. This is automated. We have this stuff funneling leads have increased 30%, you know, whatever, like the goal is. And then obviously they're getting the point that you can solve for that. You know, that's a given that you're going to say that in the email. So I do like that. I do think that's a good format. Well, I think just, I don't want to belabor this too much, actually, just because we have nine minutes left. There's one other topic. (laughs) So I guess follow-ups and arming your champion, what we're all in alignment around is like, you should be getting good problems from that first conversation and your champion should be equipped to talk about those internally. That's what's going to create buy-in internally. Um, Okay. Lastly, we're going to have to kind of go rapid fire on this one because it's a huge meaty topic. I think the other situation that reps run into is the group call. Uh, how do I run a call with, and I feel like the dynamic even changes when there's three people on a call, all of a sudden one person's on mute versus two people on the call. They're not on mute. Typically it feels more like an audience when we have three people, but, um, and Alex, I'll kick this question your way. The group call, which is oftentimes a demo, but what are some kind of do's and don'ts around where my head goes is, Hey, how do we engage people on that call? What are some things that we should do in advance maybe of that call to know what people are going to want to see? What do I do when people are not engaging on the call? (laughs) You know, there's just like a lot of stuff I feel like that comes up during group calls that I see a lot of reps run into a lot of challenges with. So yeah, what's your advice? I mean, I think it starts with fundamentals. If you start the call correctly and you engage with each individual stakeholder on the call. You can ask questions like discovery and agenda. I mean, is my answer. It's maybe too simple. (laughs) So I'm open to hearing what other people say, but like walk in, set your agenda and then do discovery and make sure that discovery is something like Jason. Like one of the reasons you might be bringing us on board is because um, you've got low response rates, your click-through rates, you know, are absolutely terrible. And you've got like a 40% spam rate. Like, That's the problem we're solving for. Is that accurate? And then once confirmed or pointed in a different direction, I would go, Caroline, or Caroline, that's funny. Is it the same for you? Or do you face a different problem? Like, would you agree with that? The hope would be they don't just go, yeah, and stop, which definitely happens on calls and is terrible when you try at the very beginning and you get a one word answer. But usually they're still engaged and open. So hopefully what you're doing is you're asking four or five questions that are going to tailor the entire call. And then as you go through the demo, as you go through more discovery, or as you even go into conclusion post-demo, you can harken back to each of those earlier statements. Carolyn, did did this solve this problem for you, which is different than Jason's problem? Jason, I don't know. I didn't actually check with you. Did we fix your problem as well? And what if you're building like the foundation properly, the rest of it flows really nicely. So agenda in my opinion, and discovery critical in group selling. I take the same approach on this one as with the trying to get the immediate response via email, like make everyone talk at the beginning. And there's so much more likely to engage throughout the call. If you just get one word 
<laughs> like, give me a pulse. Tell me you're here. It can be one word. Just get them to respond at the beginning. I think that is one of the most important things. Just hear their voice. Um, and I'm like, my take on things is always very blunt. I would say I'm a very blunt seller and I'll, I'll express my emotions pretty forwardly. So I think it's important at the beginning of a group call to be like, if you're nervous, you know, or if you're worried that people aren't going to engage, just say it be like, Hey, there is nothing I hate more than a group call with 10 people where only one person talks and I have no idea what everyone's thinking. So please do me a favor and talk. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to do the whole like popcorn reading, call on people, make you uncomfortable. But like, I, I do need other people's opinions. And the worst part would be like, we end this call. I didn't get any feedback from anyone. And then I'm emailing you guys and calling you guys and trying to figure out how it went. And you don't want that. And I don't either. So just give me your blunt feedback. Love it. Below. Love it. Below. Yeah. I got some aggressive thoughts on this one. I'm going to, I'm going to just throw out some things. First and foremost, group demos, I'm supposed to myths. You do not need everyone to talk on a group demo. You do not because not everybody matters on a group demo. And I'm just being blunt. There are certain people on the call that matter much more than others, and you need to focus on them versus the others. You do not want somebody who's in a secondary or tertiary stakeholder role talking too much about a point that is not of the interest of the people of power in that call on what they're trying to achieve and losing them. So you can lose a portion of the audience and you will. So second myth number two is that you need to keep everybody entertained on a group call. You do not. You are guaranteed to lose somebody by focusing on one point. Because if there truly are multiple stakeholders, they will have conflicting agendas. That's just the nature of different departments. They have different views on the same matter. And you are not a business therapist to solve that issue that they might be having, which is why I try to work with my champion before the call to say, who really matters on this call? Whose big yes do we need to get from this call? And let's focus on them. And then we can cater a little bit if there's time to some of the others on that call. The third thing I'd say is this, when you walk into a group call, you should be walking in multi-threaded with somebody else. Do not be alone on a group call because there's no way you can manage three, four, five, six people on a screen. You need a wingman, a co-pilot, somebody from your team with you that all they do is just while you're doing the demo or whatever it is that you're doing and focusing on yourself, all they're doing is they have gallery view opened up and they're just watching the eyes. And they're saying who's leaning in, who's leaning out, who's checking out and clearly doing something on a second screen, who just basically shut off their camera and walked away. You know, you need to know all those cues of what's going on, because that, that's going to tell you it's, it's the body language of the conversation that's going to tell you what really happened as you were catering to the different audiences. And I tell people right in the beginning, I'm going to try to marshal this call as best as I can. I already know that when I focus on one point, some of you might check out. I'm okay with that. I will get to things that are relevant to each of you as best as I can on this call. Today, I'd like to primarily focus on this, just so you're aware. And I'm already aware a portion of you might not care about that as much as that. And I can get to that later. There's a, Bilal, that's a good point too. We're a big fan of pinning on Zoom, pinning like your key buyer. If people are on camera, you know, and if you've got a whole group, but you know, one person is a little more important <laughs> or probably a lot more important, you can pin them, right? So you're staring at their face. You can hear everybody else, but you want to read the emotions and the reactions of that most important person. So that's another minutia. The other thing is on a group call, um, we had, again, one of our top sellers is a big fan of um, not negotiating with an audience, he calls it, and essentially kicking out the rest of the team. And you have to do this carefully. You have to do it smoothly. But by the end of the call, again, you've got a CEO and let's say their sales team who's looking at it and it's gone really well and you want to jump to the negotiation and it gives you an opportunity to say, Hey, Alex, so as I understand it, like this is obviously going to be mostly in your hands. Is it okay if we have the team get back to the, you know, what they need to do to their selling and you and I can talk Turkey and First of all, buyers love that. Like they puff their chest, right? And they're like, oh, sure, team go. You know, they're, they're so proud of their ability to go negotiate. It gets the team out of it. So you get all the weird like politics and reactions out of it. It lets the buyer's guard down. 
And no matter what, it gives them a, a chance to like be a hero. So leave that meeting room 15 minutes later and say like, oh yeah, I got this. Uh, you know, I'm going to negotiate. It's, it's a dynamic, right? And you have to do it right. But huge fan of that move. Yeah. So we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, we could have spent a whole hour just talking about how to run a group call today and probably not covered everything that we wanted to. Um, I wish we could talk more about this last one. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll do a part two on this. Um, you guys, I appreciate you so much. Alex, uh, Bilal, uh, Carolyn, this was awesome. Connect with these guys on LinkedIn. Let's blow up their LinkedIn profiles. I dropped it into the chat there. Um, and audience, like awesome job, just engaging and love the questions. And um, go check out Zoom Info. Go connect with these uh, three. We'd love to connect with you. And that's all we got, unfortunately, for you today. We got to end. We're out of time. Thank you, everyone. We'll Thanks, see you. Have a good one.